As I mentioned last week, Advent is all about waiting, or at least the season of Advent is all about waiting. It's waiting for the arrival of something or someone uh, very important. There's some Advent going on right now in the World Cup as people are waiting for the arrival of a final goal, a final decision of who's going to be the champion in the World Cup. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that. It's probably why there's a few less people in the room because of the World Cup. Probably some of you are watching the World Cup as I preach. Probably now that I've mentioned it, more of you will be watching the World Cup. And so you're waiting. You're waiting for something exciting to happen. And for us, the season of Advent is all about waiting to celebrate the arrival of Jesus into the world. It's about anticipating the incarnation. And as I mentioned last week, for the Israelites, the season of Advent didn't just happen for a few weeks. It lasted for centuries. It began with Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, who began to prophesy about a coming Messiah who was going to bring justice and restoration into the world, a Messiah who was going to make things right and for centuries, they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited and then all of a sudden, it happened. The God of the universe entered into this world. The Messiah entered into this world. The one who was going to set things right entered into this world. And for those who recognized what was happening, and not everyone recognized it, but for those who recognized what was happening, it was thrilling. The angels were thrilled, the shepherds were thrilled, the wise men were thrilled, people without, without hope were thrilled. And that's the way God works in our lives. We talked about it again last week, that all of us experience seasons of Advent in our lives, seasons where we're waiting and waiting and waiting, maybe waiting for a prayer to be answered, maybe waiting for someone who we've been praying for to come to know Jesus, maybe waiting for some decision, some answer, maybe waiting for um, a miracle to take place in our lives, waiting, 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 and then it comes. Maybe not in the way that we expected, maybe not in the timing that we expected, maybe it doesn't look the way that we thought it was going to look, but it comes. God breaks into our situation with manifestations of his grace and his love, and if we don't miss it, it is thrilling. We've been hanging out in the book of Isaiah for this series, and today we're looking at Isaiah 35. And I'm just going to kind of quickly go through all 10 verses of chapter 35, and then we'll kind of break it down. I'll give some brief commentary, but then we'll kind of break it down after that, it begins this way. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. This is reminding us, Isaiah is reminding us that someday... This world is going to be completely and totally restored, completely and totally new. There won't be any more deserts. The deserts will burst into bloom. There will be streams 
in the desert. All the earth will be fertile land like Lebanon. Um, we have a partner that's in Lebanon, Heart for Lebanon, and one of their ministry centers is in the Bacall Valley. And the Bacall Valley is one of the most fertile places on the face of the planet. And what Isaiah is saying is that there is coming a day when the whole earth is going to be as fertile as Lebanon, as fertile as the Bacall Valley. All the earth will be stunningly beautiful like the areas of Sharon and Carmel, which are places of breathtaking beauty. It will be this completely renewed world. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not be afraid. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. In other words, all of this is going to happen because God himself is going to come to earth and completely renew it. God is going to be present on the earth. And you go, Rod, I, I thought God already was present on the earth. And he is. God is present now, but his presence through his Holy Spirit is not visible. We cannot see him other than the body of Christ at work. And it's resistible. His presence is resistible now. You can resist it. You can be in the no position to God. We talk about being in the yes position to God. It's possible to be in the no position to God. You can disobey God, which means that there can be evil and abuse in the world. But there is coming a day, Isaiah says, when God will be present both visibly and irresistibly. That you will not be able to deny his presence. You will see God and you will not be able to resist his presence. Then Isaiah describes what it will look like when that happens. It's an incredible passage. He says, then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. What an incredibly thrilling word of hope. Isaiah is proclaiming that a time is coming when there will be no more blindness, no more deafness, no more disabilities, no more Alzheimer's, no more cancer, no more heart attacks, no more aging, no more death. A time is coming when there will be streams in the desert and water in the wilderness. Can I get an amen for that? And then finally, Isaiah wraps this passage up by saying, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in the way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away.
Isaiah is declaring that not everyone, not everyone is going to experience this complete and total restoration. It will be for those who walk in the way. It will be for the redeemed. It will be for the ransomed of the Lord. It will be for those who have put their trust in God. It will be for those who have put their trust in Jesus. Now you'll notice that it says the ransom of the Lord will return. That's us. The ransomed of the Lord will return. Throughout the history of Israel, you see this constant theme of exile and homecoming. Exile and homecoming. Israel is exiled in Egypt and then they are brought back home to the promised land. Israel is exiled in Babylon and then they are once again brought back home. And even at the time of Jesus, Israel was living in the geographic homeland, like the place where they had found the promised land, but in a very real sense, they were still in exile because they were under Roman oppression. They were enslaved in their own land, so they were not really home. In fact, if you look at the whole narrative of the Bible, you realize that the story of Israel actually reflects all of our stories. The story of all of humanity. In Genesis, Adam and Eve turn away from God and are exiled. They lose their home. And what the Bible is very clear about is that Adam and Eve's narrative, Adam and Eve's story is not unique. That all of us have sinned. The Bible says all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have turned away from God and gone into exile. And all of us have lost our sense of home. That's why all scripture is pointing to the events that are recorded in the book of Revelation. The last book in the Bible where we see God creating this new garden. This new garden city where the people of God can finally be home. In fact, the whole narrative of Scripture is about people who are in exile, people who are spiritually homeless, finding their way back home. Now that begs the question, like, what does it mean to be home? What, what is home like? Well, home, there's so many different ways to describe home, but... Home is where everything fits. Home is where everything is the way that you want it to be. That's why when we travel, as great as traveling can be, it can also be at times exhausting because even though the accommodations may be super nice, it's still not home. It's still not your bed. It's still not your space. It's still not laid out the way that you would lay it out. And in the end, home is a place of renewal. It's a place of restoration. It's a place of rest. It's a place where we can, we, we can let our hair down, that we can relax, that we can, we can be ourselves, that, that we can be nourished, that we can... Home fills us up. Home fills us up emotionally, and home fills us up spiritually. The message of Scripture is that all of us are living in a world that doesn't quite fit us, a world that doesn't meet our deepest desires, a world that 
doesn't feel quite right. We may not even be consciously aware of it, but deep down inside, we feel it. And, and, and when you've ever felt that, like when you've ever felt like things are not quite right, just seems like there's something missing, like don't feel guilty about that. You are not alone. That is the plight of every single human being on the face of the planet. That we are living in a world that does not quite fit us. And the reason is because we were created for something different than this world. You were created for something different than this world. This world is not the way that God originally designed it to be. It's no longer the garden. And you were created for the garden. You were created for a world where there is no death. You were created for a world where there is no disease. You are created. You were created for a world where there is no brokenness. You were created for a world where there is no injustice. You were created for a world where there is no abuse. You were created for a world that is filled with rightness and goodness, where people treat each other fairly and with respect, where there is no injustice, where there is no racism. You were created for that kind of world. So as people who are living in a world that doesn't fit us, what do we do? How do we react? How do we respond to living in a world that is not the world that you and I were really created to experience? Well, our tendency is to try and make this world that doesn't fit us, fit us. In other words, we, we take things like our career, our vocation, our, our family, our success, money, possessions, political agenda, whatever it is, we take these things and we try to turn it into home. We try to find home in those things. We try to find what's missing in those things. But that never works. In fact, instead of experiencing home, it's kind of like trying to live permanently in a park. Now, parks are wonderful. Parks are beautiful. Parks are a great place to visit. But they weren't designed to live in. When people who don't have a home are forced to live in a park, it's not good on, on every level. It's not good for the park. Parks weren't designed to have permanent residence. And it's not good for the people who are living in the parks. It's, it's unhealthy. There's no restrooms. There's no sanitation system. There's no shelter to protect people from the elements. The park can become a breeding ground for disease. It's just not good at every level. That's why addressing homelessness in our culture is so important because Everyone needs a home. Everyone needs a place of renewal. Everyone needs a place of restoration. Everyone needs a place of rest. Everyone needs a place that nourishes them and fills them up and protects them. And the same is true with spiritual homelessness. 
If you try to turn something that was never intended to be your home, like your vocation or money or success or a particular relationship or even your family, if you try to turn them into something that was never intended to be your spiritual home, it's like living in a park. You will destroy the park. In other words, whatever it is that you've placed the expectation of being home on will crumble under the weight of that expectation. Your vocation will crumble under the weight of the expectation of being that which fills your soul. Any relationship that you try to turn into home will crumble under the expectation of trying to be something it was never created to be. Even your family, when you try to turn your family into the source of spiritual homeness, like you will inevitably crush those relationships because they were never intended to be the place where you and I find our spiritual home. They were never intended to be that, the place that ultimately fills our soul. They weren't designed to nurture your soul. So what's the solution? Well, Psalm 90 tells us in this very simple but incredibly profound declaration, the psalmist says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place. Lord, you are our home. Throughout all generations, whatever the season, whatever the time, whatever the century, whatever the circumstances, whatever the culture, he's saying, you have been our dwelling place. You have been our home. You have been the place where we have found true home. The psalmist calls God our dwelling place. Now, what does that mean? What does home mean? It means that you were created to be in a relationship with God. That's how God created you. He created you to be in a relationship with him. He created you to serve him. He created you to love him. And if that's not happening, we're not home. And we desperately need to come home. Now, coming home is not about mustering up all of your strength and making a determination that I am going to find my way home. This is the year that I find my way home. I know that I'm kind of off the path. I know that I'm kind of lost a little bit. I'm going to get things right. I'm going to find my way home. No, coming home is about admitting that you are lost and that you have no idea how to find your way home. Coming home is about humbling yourself before God and admitting that you're a sinner. It's about admitting that you don't have it all together. It's about admitting your flaws and your failures. It's about admitting that you cannot fix things on your own. It's about admitting that you need a savior because you cannot save yourself. Coming home is about admitting that you are headed in the wrong direction and that you desperately need to turn around. The Bible calls that repentance. 
And here's what's amazing about repentance. That when you decide to repent, when you decide to turn around, that Jesus is right there. And that he won't help you find your way home. He is your home. He is your dwelling place. Which means the moment that you repent, the moment that you turn around, the moment that you face in a different direction, the moment that you recognize your need to go in a different direction, you will be home. Sometimes we get this sense that, okay, we're headed in the wrong direction and I know that and I've been on this path for a long, long time and I know that I need to turn around and I need to go in another direction, but sometimes we're hesitant to do that or we're overwhelmed at the thought because we've been on this path for such a long time that we know when we turn around, we have such a long way to go to find our way home. But the reality is that Jesus has been following you down that path and when you turn around, when you repent, when you finally decide to head in a different direction, he is there and you are home. You don't have to find your way home. You don't have to work to find your way home. You don't have to take a long path to figure out where home is. Jesus is there and you are home. That is the essence of the gospel. That is the good news of the gospel. Christmas is all about exile and homecoming. Exile and homecoming. We tend to sentimentalize Christmas. But the narrative of Christmas, when you think about it, is brutal. It's a brutal narrative. Jesus was born on the road, away from home. He wasn't even born in a, in a house. He was born in a cave. Mary gave birth in a cave where it was dark and cold and terrible. In Bethlehem, they've built a church over the cave where they believe that Jesus was born. It's called the Church of the Nativity. We were actually there in October with uh, a group from our church. And even though the church is beautiful and there are all of these ornaments now that adorn the cave, you still get this sense of what an inhospitable environment it was for a birth. What a totally inhospitable environment. Think about it. A 14-year-old girl giving birth in a cave filled with the stench of urine and manure because it served as a stable for animals. No epidurals, no doctors, no midwife, nobody wearing rubber gloves, no NICU unit. And when the baby is born, he's laid in a feed trough that the animals eat from. You know how many nasty diseases you can get from a feed trough? A lot. And the story isn't supposed to make you, you know, we, we read the nativity story, we, we look at the creches, we look at the nativity scenes, and, and, and we go, oh, that's so sweet, that's so beautiful. The story isn't supposed to make you feel all warm and fuzzy. The story is supposed to break your heart. The story is supposed to remind you of the harshness of this world. It's supposed to remind you of how inhospitable this world really is. And this theme of homelessness is seen throughout Jesus' ministry, not just at his birth. Yes, he was born homeless. 
But then he lived a homeless life. Scripture says that the Son of Man had nowhere, nowhere to lay his head. And when Jesus goes to the cross, he experiences the ultimate exile, the ultimate homelessness. In the Old Testament, on the Day of Atonement, this one day that happened in the course of the year, the high priest would symbolically place the sins of all of the people of Israel, place the sins symbolically of all of the people on the head of a goat. It was called the scapegoat. And the goat would be taken outside of the city into the wilderness. The the goat would be literally exiled. It, It would be literally driven away from home, outside of the city, outside of its home, away from home. And when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus became our scapegoat. In that moment, Jesus became your scapegoat. In that moment, all of our sins were placed on him. In that moment, all of your sins and failures and brokenness was placed on him. On him. In that moment, Jesus was exiled so that we could come home from exile. In that moment, God, the God of the universe, became homeless so that you could find your way home. Near the end of C.S. Lewis' book, The Last Battle, which was the seventh and last book in the Chronicles of Narnia, the unicorn, the main character in that book, says this I have come home at last. He's talking about this very thing that we are talking about. It's what C.S. Lewis did with all of the novels that he wrote as it was spiritual realities behind the novels. He says, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. Let me ask you a question. Have you come home? Have you come home? Have you repented of your sin? Have you admitted your need for a savior? Have you experienced God's forgiveness in your life, God's grace in your life? And if not, today is the day that you can turn around and be home. But maybe for some of you, maybe for most of you, most of you who are here in the blue seats, most of you who are online, the reality is that you've already done that. But if the truth be known, you have kind of wandered away from home. You've kind of wandered away from Jesus. Maybe because of some hurts, maybe because of some pain, some disappointment, something that you thought was going to go this particular direction in your life and it ended up going this direction. Or maybe because you've just gotten so busy, so preoccupied with this world that is not your ultimate 
home, that you have wandered away from your true home. You have wandered away from the source of home. See, here's the thing about repentance. Is that sometimes when we talk about repentance, we only talk about within the context of the first way that I described it. For the person who has never found home, has never turned around and for the first time says yes to Jesus. For the first time says yes to the Savior. For the first time says yes to forgiveness and grace and finds home for the first time. But the reality is that repentance is something that has to be a regular part of our lives because we are so prone to wonder. We are so prone to slowly and incrementally and sometimes without us even recognizing what's going on to move away from our true home. To, to distance ourselves relationally from Jesus who is the source of our home. And the good news is that when you realize that's what's been going on, when you realize that's what's happening, when you realize that, oh, I, I've, I've drifted, I've drifted. And you repent of that and you turn, you are immediately home. No long journey back. No trying to undo all the things that have been done. You are home. So for some of you today, it's the day to come home for the first time. For others of you, it is the day to come home again, to come back home. God. You are our dwelling place. You are our home. Our heart is restless when we try to make anything else in our life home other than you. So Lord, we repent of that. Perhaps for some today, it is the first time that we have, have truly said, I want to say yes to what Jesus has done for me on the cross. I want to come home. I want to experience his forgiveness and his grace. And today they repent and they turn and they say yes to you as Savior. Lord, for others of us, perhaps today in the midst of this Advent season is the day in which we come back home. That we have drifted. 
that we have wandered a bit and that you are calling us to turn and to come back home. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be open. It would be hearts that are open to repent, open and willing to turn, desirous of being home. In the name of Jesus, who is our home, who is our dwelling place, we pray.